Well, good morning, Oakwood family, and welcome to part two of our series called Home for Christmas. So glad that you are here with us today. I wanted to tell you the, the story about Bob and Lois. Uh, Bob and Lois had uh, been married a little bit over 40 years, and they were at that age and stage of life, and some of you in this room might be able to relate to this, where their kids had grown and they'd gotten married and they'd had their own families. They had a son and, and two younger daughters, and um, they were talking and talking about Christmas, and, and, and Lois just told, turned to Bob and said, man, I just, all I really want for Christmas is to have my kids come home. And wouldn't it be great to have the kids come home? And they were kind of reminiscing about what it was like to have them, you know, all together, uh, the five of them for Christmas, and just how special that would be. But they understood, you know, that time moves on and situations change, and Bob decided, hey, I'm going to call my, my oldest son. And so he had stepped out into the, into the garage and had called their oldest son and said, man, is there... Um, you know, your mom's just missing you guys at Christmas. Is there any way you guys would, you would come home for Christmas? And he's like, no. And he's like, well, I just, I've got some, some bad news I need to share with you. Um, after 40 years of marriage, your mother and I, um, we're going to get a divorce. And the son, of course, was shocked. And, and he said, would you please tell uh, your sisters? I don't, I don't want to have to call them and tell them that. And so, so the son reluctantly agreed. And so the son called the, the sisters. And it was about an hour later Bob's phone rings, and he steps out on the back porch. It's their youngest daughter, and he's like, hello. And she's like, Dad, you know, the brother, you know, had told me all about this. And, Dad, please don't do it. Please, please don't, don't get a divorce. And, and so um, I've called, you know, we've all the siblings have talked. We're all getting on a plane. We will be there tomorrow. And um, if, if you guys just don't do anything until we get there. And he said, okay, okay. And after he hung up the phone, he walked back to the living room and said, Lois, the kids are coming home for Christmas. Now, if you pull a stunt like that with your family, don't tell them you got it from me, okay? <laughs> I got that story from someone else myself. But, uh, hey, sometimes we'll go to whatever it takes, right, to just be home for Christmas. We want that warmth. We want that feeling. For some of us, that's nostalgia. I want us to realize, though, that if you say you're going home for Christmas, a lot of times people think of a place. Maybe you're from, you know, South Texas, and you're like, hey, we're going to South Texas for Christmas, and you might let it slip and tell people, hey, we're going home for Christmas. Or maybe you're from, from up north somewhere, from Iowa or Minnesota, and you would tell somebody, hey, we're going back home. We're going back home for, for Christmas. And a lot of people think of home for Christmas as a place. You know, we're journeying and we're going to this location. And when you get there, it's just a house. And maybe you have some nostalgia about a place like that. It was the farm or the house or grandpa and grandma's house that was, you know, on the hill that overlooked the river. And we always used to sing when we were going to their house over the river and through the woods to grandma's house we go. And, you know, you, you have all of these feelings. But it's really, if you think about it, it's really not about the house. It's not about the location necessarily. It's not about the, the old farm, you know, the homestead or whatever. It's really about the people. Home is where your family is. Home is where your people are. And I want to remind us of that as we uh, continue in this series today and talking about being home for Christmas. Because this same meaning was what it meant for Jesus to come. Did Jesus, like, make a journey? Yeah, he was in the throne room of heaven. He came down to earth took on the form of man. We call that the incarnation. Took on the form of man. Became 100% human to, to be among us. But home for him wasn't the location of earth. It never will be. 
but coming and making his dwelling among us. Let's remember what it says there in the text in John chapter 1, verse 14 that we talked about last week. It says this, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the first part of John 1.14 there, it says that that word, we talked about that last week, that's the Son of God. It's a reference to Jesus Christ. The word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. That word dwelling means to tabernacle. He wants to have home with us. And all the protections and all the comforts and all the relationships that that means. He came to earth to make his dwelling among us. But when he made that journey, it wasn't about a location. Home for Jesus was to be amongst God's people. And so many times I think we miss that. We miss that home is people. It's that bond of love and affection that we have that means something to us during the holiday season. Our main text today is found in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. So if you want to turn there in your Bible, you can. And as always, you are welcome to follow along in the Oakwood app. You can download that on your phone or your tablet. Um, Just go to Sermon Notes in the app, and all the scriptures and everything will be there for you. Um, Also, we have a sermon outline in the bulletin. We just want you to engage the Word of God this morning and allow God to speak. As we were talking about last week about the journey and what the journey is like to make it home sometimes, today we're going to be talking about the intentionality of Jesus when he came into the world, that this was an intentional push from Almighty God to have a relationship with his people, and it was perfectly orchestrated. I know sometimes you look at that that, that Christmas story and you look at that nativity you're seeing and you're like, man, that was bad planning, you know, barnyard animals in attendance and no room in the inn, and you know, this, this, but God orchestrated everything perfectly to his plan. Let's read Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. It says this, but when the set time had fully come, don't miss that, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. The time that Jesus came to draw us home to himself, notice there in verse 4, it says it was a set time and that God had waited for his set time, his plan, to fully come. When everything was perfect, when everything, when everything was the way God had planned it, God is very strategic in nature, even when it doesn't make total sense to us sometimes. But God arranged the circumstances of the Christmas story, whether it was lined up with man's thought of it or how the Son of God and the Messiah would come into the world, it didn't matter. God did it with his plan and his timing. And you read throughout Scripture and you have to realize that God is always good at timing everything. Now, I know sometimes we go through things in life and we may be in situations and circumstances where we feel like God, is, is, his timing is off. You know, in our finite mind, we as humans, we kind of like to act like we're in control and we like to have our own plan. And so we might be saying, you know, well, we thought this would happen and I thought I would be here and I thought that this would take place first. And 
And then I thought, you know, the, I thought for sure we'd be by here by now. And, and then that didn't happen. And this happened way later than I thought it would. And I thought I was going to be there. And I ended up over here. And, and the timing to us and our plans and our will and our way sometimes seems off. It seemed off to characters in the scripture. But when we read the Bible and we understand God's story, we see God showing up in the perfect time, whether it lined up with man's thoughts or not, all throughout the text of Scripture. You'll go, you go back to like Genesis 22. You remember Genesis 22 is the story of Abraham and Isaac. And God has told Abraham to take his one and only son Isaac up on this mountain. And he gets up there and leads him to believe that he's going to be sacrificed. It was a test it was a test for Abraham of his faithfulness and his allegiance and his trust in God. And if you do remember the story, just in the right nick of time, there's this ram that gets its, gets its horns caught in a thicket. And that ram becomes the substitute sacrifice. Instead of offering Isaac, Abraham will now offer this ram. God's timing in that moment was perfect. But it's not just natural, it's also almost like humans. Like, like God can control the timing of when things are going to happen with humans. You see this all throughout, going back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, chapters 37 through 50. You know the story of the life of Joseph. I mean, you think about all the things that happen. Joseph's brothers are jealous. They drag him out in the wilderness. They throw him in a pit. And it just so happens at that moment in time, some slave traders from Egypt... Come, come by, and they said, hey, instead of killing him or leaving him here for dead in this pit, let's sell him as a slave and get him out of here. And so they do. Slave traders take him to Egypt. You know the story that he, the perfect time he sold on the auction block to someone named Potiphar. Potiphar works for Pharaoh as part of the, part of the palace guard. You know that he's falsely accused and falsely imprisoned for two years but while he's in prison it gives him the opportunity to interpret some dreams for pharaoh and joseph ends up being second in command over all of egypt whoa and in those prediction of those dreams he also predicted that there would be a famine and that egypt should start saving up their grain and because they were the only country in the world that knew about this famine they were prepared and everyone else on earth was unprepared and if you know the story of Joseph, you know that at the end of the story, his own family comes before him in Egypt begging for food. God's timing throughout everything in Joseph's life was perfect. There are moments where you read those texts and you read those stories, you're like, oh, wait a second, I'm not sure. I'm not sure God's, uh, where, where, wait, wait a second, where's God here? Oh, did you see what God did? Oh, what about over here? Oh, he's, he's late. He did, oh. You see this all throughout the Word of God, even into the Old Testament and the New Testament, that God, our God is a God of precision timing. Moses, you remember they're going to kill all of the babies of the Israelites. It just so happens that Moses is put in a basket on a river and it floats down just at the right time when Pharaoh's daughter happens to be bathing in the river and she takes Moses into Pharaoh's household. God's timing is perfect just so happens that Boaz just happened to be walking by his own fields on the way from Bethlehem while the foreigner Ruth was gleaning the grain in his fields. Again, the timing was perfect. You remember the story of Esther, and maybe some of you this year uh, went over and saw the, the Esther show in, in Branson. 
at Sight and Sound Theaters. But you know the story of Esther just happened to be crowned queen just before her people were threatened to be exterminated. And you remember what she said to her uncle? Maybe God has brought me here for such a time as this. God's timing was perfect. What about David? David was taking supplies to his brothers. He just happened to take it when this giant of a man from the Philistines named Goliath was calling them out. And the timing just so happened that David would encounter this, see the fear in God's people and say, I'll step forward and put my faith in God. And he takes his sling and his stone and slays a giant. And I could go on and on throughout the Old Testament and the Bible, even into the New Testament, and show you how God is in control and God's timing is always perfect. And it's on the background of this that I want to use this as the backdrop for understanding that Jesus came into the world at the precise right moment that God intended. He came in at the just the right time to make his dwelling among us and to invite us into his family. Do not doubt God's intentionality in timing. Because I understand, sometimes we would say, you've heard this line before, that timing is everything. Isn't there, isn't there nothing worse at Christmas than an, a mistimed or ill-timed gift that you receive? You ever had one of those? I'll just give an advice for free, free advice for parents this morning, okay? If you are going to buy your children a swimming pool, don't buy it for them at Christmas. Why? They want to do what in the swimming pool? They will want to swim. They will want to swim in the swimming pool. Folks, I, I mean, we've had some pretty mild weather, you know, ish the last couple weeks. Folks, there's not to be swimming in December, January, February, March, and let's be honest, a couple years ago, even into the third week of April in Oklahoma. And so this mistimed gift will cause you much angst and heartache during the Christmas season. So uh, you have to think about those things. And, and let me just give a, give a piece of advice here for all, the, for all the guys in the room, all the husbands. If you're celebrating an anniversary or a birthday for your wife in June, don't give her the Sherpa or the parka in June. She's not going to wear it in the heat of the Oklahoma summer. Okay, that's a great Christmas present. That's a mistimed anniversary or birthday in June present. Okay. Think about these things. You understand that it's all about timing sometimes in life. And I want you to understand that when Jesus entered the world, it was the perfect moment in time to show people how to find a home in him. The world had been wonderfully prepared for his coming. Wonderfully prepared. Now, how can we know that? A couple of years ago, we actually did a whole series that was based upon all the prophecies about Jesus coming into the world at Christmas. All the timelines, all the times, the places, the people, everything about it, we had studied all that out. So there's obviously a ton of prophecy in the Old Testament that speaks to all of these conditions that would happen around the Messiah coming into the world. That's obvious. But there were also some, I guess you'd say, physical things socio things that were going on in the culture at the time that also made it just seem like the perfect time for Jesus to make his way into the world and to offer us a home with him. For the next few minutes this morning, I want to talk to you about some of those things. We're going to go through them really quickly. So if you're taking notes, hang on. The first one is this. Understand that the timing was perfect because the law had done its educational work. 
The law had done its educational work. When I say the law there, I'm talking about the Torah from Scripture. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible are called the law, the books of the law, the law of Moses. And the law had done its educational work. And you could say, how? Well, it had shown through the Jewish nation that men and women, people, are terrible sinners. And despite all of God's favor on them and, and, and all of his instruction and the special relationship that he had with the Israelites, his, his chosen people, they still failed to keep the law. They still failed to live up to God's standards and failed to worship him in truth and in love. And this law pointed out the depravity of man, that men had a depraved heart. The law had done its educational work. The second thing, uh, the world was full of people who were spiritually starved. When Jesus was born, the world was full of people who were spiritually starved. The worship of self, the worship of pleasure, the worship of idols was on an uptick. And the philosophical ethics that all of these people had at the time left them empty and barren. What was going on at the time was Greek influence from a ruler named Alexander the Great. He had put the whole world, as he overtook the world as a conqueror, through a process that we would call and study in history today called Hellenization. Hellenization was the process of trying to get the culture to line up with philosophies and ideas and language, to try to get the culture all on the same page. This also introduced idols, introduced this philosophical thinking that, that led to emptiness, that led to questioning everything. And especially for the Jews because of the Roman suppression at the time. The world was full of these people with all of these, all of these antics, all of these different thoughts. The soul was having this spiritual hunger. And people were waking up spiritually starved, understanding that they needed a savior. The third thing was that the world was at peace under Roman rule. The world was at peace under Roman rule. There were no major wars going on at this time. With a common government, there was common peace instead of war. Now, I know you would say, well, it was because of, of how Rome ruled, right? It was because of the suppression that, that the people were under, but there were still not any major wars going on. The gospel could come into the world without distraction, without restraint, because of the peace that the Romans had brought. The fourth thing is that the world spoke Greek as a basic language, making communication possible with many from all over the world. That was the common language. Much like today, they would say English is probably the most common language of most of the world. But in this day and time, how did you cross borders? How did you cross the county or the country that you were living in? How could you communicate? Because of Hellenization again, the gospel could be spread and communicated and comprehended by many people. This communication was possible because of this common language. You know that the Bible, the Old Testament, was written in Hebrew, and the New Testament, which is the stories of Jesus coming into the world, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and the rest of the Bible is written in Greek. That's, that's the reason why it was the common language at the time in written and in spoken form. And what's unique about that, if you remember the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. 
you ever read that passage and wonder, this guy is an Ethiopian eunuch from Ethiopia and Africa, and he's reading the Bible and understanding, and Philip shows up, and they have a conversation. Philip explains to him what he's been reading in the text of Scripture, and then we read that that Ethiopian eunuch said, I want to accept Christ now. He gets off and gets baptized on the spot. All of that was possible because they were speaking a common language at the time. Greek had permeated the world. And without this language barrier anymore, the gospel could spread so quickly. It was a great and perfect time for the gospel to come into the world. The fifth thing is that the world had a system of roads for mass travel, which allowed Christian missionaries to reach the farthest parts of the earth. We see that evidenced through so many things in the New Testament. This also brought about a lot of commercial travelers to what were called cities now. These metropolitan centers of business where Christians could become concentrated. And this set the stage for most of of Paul's missionary journeys in the New Testament as he went to these hub cities. It made me think of the story of Lydia. You might remember Lydia's story. She was the the seller of fine linens. She was probably the, the fashion guru of the time. And, and her fashion was, was so great that she was very wealthy. And if you read her story, you understand, and from the book of Acts and also in the book of Philippians, that she was a part of the church at Philippi. In fact, the early uh, Philippian church probably met at her home, which probably with her wealth was the size of a palace. How did that all come about? It was because of these roads and these commerce routes that the missionaries could now hop on and take the gospel, take the good news to all of these places. You see, the timing was perfect according to God's will and plan for his son to enter the world. Verse 4 of our text, let's read it again. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. It was a set time. It wasn't an accident. Christmas wasn't an accident. God knew exactly what he was doing. He had a precision plan, and he worked it to the nth degree. And we could stop there this morning as having a build in our faith and see all this and say, yes, yes. But I don't want you to miss out on the why. Okay, he came in at the certain time in history when the time had fully come. What does the rest of our text say there in Galatians chapter 4? As you get into verse 5, it says, God sent a son born of a woman, born under the law. We talked about the law and what that means. To redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Why did he do this? It's to redeem those who are under the law. The law had shown us the depravity of all mankind. People were, were starved spiritually and knew there's no way I can keep God's law. So what hope do I have? Sometimes before Christ, that's where we have to come to before we'll place our faith in him. We come to the spot, we look at ourselves, we realize, I am not a good person. Yeah, sure, sometimes in our intellect, we like to say, well, I'm better than them. I'm not as bad a sinner as them. I don't cuss as much as them. I don't cheat on my spouse as much as them. I don't steal money like, like that person. And we try to compare ourselves to make us feel better. But folks, look in the mirror. We are a sinful people and there's no way we can keep God's law and that's what even God's chosen people Israel were up against as they looked in the mirror at this time and here comes Jesus with this thought to redeem us who are under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship that we become sons 
and daughters of the Lord God Almighty and be a part of his family. You see, Jesus came to redeem us. Jesus came to redeem us. He came to rescue us. That word redeem there in our verse, uh, in verse 5 there means to atone, to compensate for, to make amends for, to sacrifice or buy back. He came to redeem us out of our sinfulness and into his wonderful light. We need to be reminded that Jesus came to redeem us. We also need to be reminded that Jesus came to save us from something for something. He came to save us from something for something. So many times we're like, oh yeah, he came to save us from this and he came to save us from that. But he also saved us for something. Listen to some of these. He saved us from sin for salvation. But he also saved us from sin to walk in newness of life. Romans 6 says that we become new people in him. He saves us from our life of wickedness and sin. He saves us from our past for a bright future with him. He saves us from being a wreck of a person to being a person who is redeemed and walking with the Lord God Almighty. You see, Jesus came to save us from something for something. From darkness, he saves us to walk in the light. From evil, he saves us to doing good things. From the stress and the chaos of this world, he saves us for peace and comfort that is only found in him. We need to remember that when Jesus came for these people, he came, he came to save us from something for, some, for something. For them at Jesus' moment in time and even for us today. And the last thing that we need to understand is that Jesus came to adopt us into God's family. He came to adopt us into God's family. We understand this concept of adoption. We have adoption centers, places you can go to to help legally move the process along. We have foster care systems in place that sometimes lead to adoption. And we can understand in fullness what that means exactly. But you have to understand that in that verse five there, when it says adoption to sonship, that is actually a legal term. The Apostle Paul wrote this to, to the Galatians, to the, to the Christians in Galatia. And he was using a legal binding term that the Romans used and that the, everyone knew in the Greek language. When we read adoption to sonship, sonship, it meant that you became like a male heir in the family. And with you being a male heir in the family, there were certain rights and privileges that was only for you. And so when he writes this here, we need to remember that we are now part of God's family. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like this. If you came over to my house today, I invited you over to my house, and you came into my house, and you just started walking back, you know, into some part of the house you're not invited, that'd be a little weird, right? I mean, if you came into my house today, and I invited you over, and you were like, hey, Eric, how's it going? You know, and you just walked into my kitchen, opened my refrigerator, I'm like, what are you doing? That's weird, weirdo. It's like, don't, you don't, you're not invited to do that. Why? Because you're not a part of my family. You're, you're not a, this is my home, right? You don't just make yourself at home in my home. I mean, you go back and to, you know, lay in my bed. It's weird. Don't do that. It's weird. Here's the thing. We may feel like, hey, when we're outside, we don't have refrigerator rights. But when you're inside the family, you do. And that legal term, what, what is trying to be expressed there to us 
is when that time had fully come, when that set time had fully come, and God sent Jesus into the world, he sent Jesus in the world so that we would be a part of God's family. We were outsiders, now we are insiders. So much so that God would call us his children and he would say, that is my son and that is my daughter. And because they're in the house, they can get in the fridge whenever they want. It's not weird because we're family. And it's not weird because this is home. So much so that I sent my son to them to make his dwelling, John 1, 14, among them so that they could be adopted through his atoning sacrifice. They could be adopted to become a part of my family. And that changes everything. That changes your rights. That changes your inheritance. That changes everything for you as a believer. And here's the good news this morning. Jesus welcomes struggling people, hurting people, addicted people, sinful people, outsiders, runaways, castaways, the unwanted, the overlooked, and the marginalized. And he offers to them, yes, even you, I actually want you to be a part of my family. And I know for some of us, it's like, no way, I'm, I'm a bad dude. It just blows your mind. But that is why he came. And the invitation, we talked about this week, last week, the invitation is for everyone. For everyone? Are you sure, Pastor? For everyone. He's offering you an inheritance. And to be living with him in relationship with him in his home. Not as a guest, but as a son or a daughter. Home is a person. And his name is Jesus. And in Matthew chapter eleven twenty eight, he calls out to us this way. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, this is Jesus talking. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Anyone weary and burdened? And he says, and I will give you rest. Some of us, we want to find rest. And we think, wow, it's in the nick of time. Come home to Jesus. Do you understand this morning that you have a divine invitation? This is from, coming from God Almighty himself. You have a divine invitation to come to Jesus, to come into a relationship with Jesus. And I know you're thinking, well, I'm a bad, bad person and all that stuff. You are. I am. We all were. And yeah, there's a price that has to be paid. You know that if you know Scripture. The rule from the beginning when Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden is when there is sin, something has to die. There has to be bloodshed for it. But Jesus did away with the whole animal sacrificial system and said, I am the one that keeps the law perfectly. I am the son of God, and I will take on all of the sins of the world for all that list of people that I mentioned just a minute ago. And I want them to have an opportunity. I was talking to the youth Wednesday night, and I said this. If there were a thousand steps between you and God, God would take 999 of them. Do you understand that? Jesus was with God in the throne room of heaven, came all the way to earth, put skin on, became flesh just like you and me, and made his dwelling, his home among us. He took all the steps to get to us. All we have to do is to take one step toward him, to look on him and to call him Savior, and Lord, 
That's the divine invitation from God Almighty for all of us in this room, for all of us online. Will you make that decision? Because I can't think of a better time than Christmas to, to look at this relationship that you have and say, am I in God's family? The invitation's there. He will adopt you. He will sign the paperwork. He will provide for you. You can get in God's fridge. I don't know what's in there, but I'm sure it's awesome. You get to be a part of God's family. But you have to take that step. And I hope that you'll take that step this morning.